beginning, we will be beginning this morning's scripture portion at verse 57 of Luke chapter 1. And I think in many of the bulletins there's a sermon outline. If that's helpful to you, you can use that to follow along this morning's message, though you certainly don't have to. This morning is the fourth sermon in an Advent series, Characters Around the Cradle. And the title of my sermon this morning is Zechariah, a Christmas Convert. We're actually picking up the second part of Zechariah's story in this this morning's portion of Scripture. The the prequel to this story, or the the prelude to this story, is in the beginning of Luke's Gospel, starting at Luke 1, verse 5 through verse 25. I'd encourage you to read that later on this afternoon to get a fuller picture. I'll be referring to that prequel a few times in this morning's message, but we'll focus here on Luke 1:57 to the end of the chapter. Let's give our attention then to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he said, And he asked for a little writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately, his, John's, mouth, or Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came upon all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies in the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will, be, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise, the King James there has day spring, which I love, the sunrise or day spring from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The grass withers, 
and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for the reading of your holy word. We are now praying that you would illuminate us as it is explained. The text even describes our need for illumination, that this sunrise, who is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, promised of of old, shines light upon those who sit in darkness. So shine your light upon us now, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Preaching, which is one of my primary jobs, is not an easy task. First of all, it's hard to define what exactly is a sermon. It isn't a speech, but it does resemble a speech in some ways. It isn't my opinion, but it requires me to have an opinion. Technically, I can't do it by myself, but I need to work hard at it. It's also unique because it's for a unique audience. It needs to be acceptable and helpful and applicable to all kinds of people from all walks of life. This includes people who are new to the faith and aged saints who have been following Jesus for many decades. Preaching is also difficult because it involves a careful study of God's word, but it is by no means an academic exercise. It needs to be practical and clear, simple, but not simplistic. Preaching can't be watered down. Scripture teaches that you need to move in your faith from the milk to the meat, the latter being the more profound aspects of faith. Yet, Jesus also warns you to remain humble like a child. The other thing that's unique about preaching is the preacher's family, if he's married. The parents of the preacher, the wife, the children of a preacher, even his friends, have the unusual challenge of relating to the person who week by week stands and speaks on behalf of Christ. Someone that they know very well is an ordinary human with feet of clay. I've introduced my sermon this morning with this topic of preaching because it relates to our text. It's the fourth character around the cradle, and Zechariah, who is in the spotlight this morning, is a Jewish priest who suddenly and surprisingly receives a visit from an angel who announces that he's about to become the father of the greatest preacher that the human race has ever known, next to Jesus himself. And that's John the Baptist. I wonder how Zechariah felt at the news. His initial reaction, we'll say, was less than ideal. He didn't believe that what God said he was going to do, God really was going to do. So I'm calling him a Christmas convert. That's my title this morning. Zechariah, a Christmas convert. He struggled to accept God's plan for his son, who wasn't just going to be a preacher. I mean, that's hard enough, parents. He was going to be the preacher, the Elijah, promised of of old, the forerunner, the savior of the world. Now, Joseph, we saw last week, had doubt, but Zechariah's doubt was different. Zechariah crossed a line. Joseph's doubt was largely in ignorance and based out of his righteous zeal to be obedient to God. Zechariah, however, actually questioned God. Now, Zechariah was not an atheist. He wasn't leaning in towards denying 
the existence of God. He wasn't doubting that God was there, but he doubted God's work. He lacked confidence in God. It seems to me, and this is a little bit of an inference that I hope my message this morning will bear out, it seems to me that Zechariah had grown somewhat lazy in his faith, maybe a little routine, uh, maybe a little calloused. His wife, having been barren for all her adult years, her entire fertility had been passed without any child coming into the family of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And perhaps Zechariah, perhaps Elizabeth as well, had forgotten that nothing was impossible with God. I think this is a problem that you can relate to as well. Some of you with Zechariah struggle to remember that nothing is impossible with God. For whatever reason, some of you may have become lazy in your faith, a little calloused, a little indifferent. So while Zechariah's role in redemptive history must be honored and preserved, he plays a a uniquely unrepeatable uh, role in the history of salvation. There will never be another John the Baptist. There will never, never be another virgin birth. We can still learn from Zechariah, the father of the greatest preacher of all time, and learn from him as a Christmas convert. I want to review the story of Zechariah's conversion this morning and then highlight two parts of that conversion. First of all, what he's converted from. And I've broken this out into kind of five aspects. And then second of all, what he becomes or what he's converted to. And I'm concentrating on three areas in that second point. And I'll end with a personal story and some personal applications to your life. But first, to review our story. It's the very first event in Luke's gospel. Imagine this. The very first story that Luke, the historian, begins telling the story of Jesus is about a little-known Jewish priest of the, of the division of Abijah. There's probably 800 priests in Zechariah's division who, religiously speaking, had hit the lottery. He was asked on a very important day to light the incense in the holy place. And while he was going in to do this job, there were people outside gathered and praying. By the way, that's a, a great reminder that while one man does the holy work, others ought to be praying. And as a congregation, even while I'm preaching, you should be praying. I love Spurgeon in his story of the Metropolitan Tabernacle apparently had the boiler room, which probably was a boiler room in old London, where all through the service there was a group of people praying that God would be exalted and Jesus would show up in a mighty way, and he did in Spurgeon's ministry. But Zechariah took a little longer than they were expecting, and they were wondering what was going on in there. What could be holding him up? I mean, he's just lighting incense for crying out loud. We've done this a hundred times. Well, the scene inside was very different. Gabriel, who we're told, stands in the presence of Almighty God, appeared to Zechariah and told him not to be afraid. People have to be told not to be afraid when an angel appears. They aren't the cuddly sorts you just want to kind of snuggle up to. This is Gabriel. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. 
God has seen your wife's misery and shame and has removed it. She who is barren in her old age will bear a son and he will be great. He will go before the Messiah that Moses promised, that David mirrored for us and that the prophets foretold. And he'd bring the people preparedness by preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins, which is what we need to know before we can embrace a Savior. We need to know that we're sinners and we need to be aroused out of our slumber. Zechariah, this is what your son will do. And all Zechariah could think was, that's not possible. He sort of missed the whole entire message. As we often do, his mind got stuck on that one little thing. You know, barrenness, menopause, the whole bit. And so Gabriel, I'm sure he was standing tall, but I see him standing a little taller at this moment. He says, I am Gabriel. It's amazing. I am Gabriel. And I have come from the presence of God. I am not just your ordinary errand boy. And the scripture doesn't say it, but, and it's maybe too strong, which is why Gabriel didn't say it, but I'd want to say, how dare you? Maybe you're thinking that too. Zechariah, how dare you say such a thing? And because of your unbelief, Gabriel says to Zechariah, you will remain mute. You will no longer be able to speak. And by the way, the Greek word for for muteness or, or dumbness, as it used to be called, is also the same word for deafness. So he may have been struck both deaf and dumb, though Our translations highlight his speechlessness. His dumbstruck condition remained throughout Elizabeth's pregnancy. Children, that's nine months of not being able to talk. Now, I think you might wish that your parents or your dad might be silent for nine months. I'm not sure. But it certainly gave Zechariah some time to think, didn't it? A little retreat from the world of words and the world of sound, even. To reflect on that most unusual of incense lighting ceremonies in the holy place where Gabriel announced that with the sword of the very hand of God, history was being cleaved in two and Elijah was coming to prepare the way of the Messiah himself. What must have Zechariah's journals looked like as he wrote, perhaps, or prayed, or thought about? What would those conversations with his wife Elizabeth have looked like as he's writing out, perhaps, his thoughts, describing the visitation as he surely did describe to her what happened? And her eyes getting wide as saucers, hearing that not only had her husband, the, the priest, been visited by Gabriel himself, but she, she would have a son, the barren one, the childless one. 
Apparently there was a tradition in the ancient society where, and though we see lots of names in the Bible, it would seem, that are specially given with special meaning, at this point in history, tradition had begun to sort of creep in that you simply name the child, particularly the firstborn son, after the father. I wonder if this even is in a hint of a little laissez-faire religiosity that had crept in. We don't need a special name for the boy, the firstborn. God isn't doing much these days anyway. It's been centuries since we've had a prophet in Israel. Name him Zechariah. And Elizabeth's response is emphatic in the text. She goes, no, no, it is absolutely not Zechariah. His name will not be Zechariah. His name will be John. Ioannan in Greek. Yachanan in Hebrew. Hanan. God is gracious. And I was thinking about this. God is gracious. Was God gracious to Zechariah to make him the father of the new Elijah? Yes. Certainly was gracious to Elizabeth to remove her barrenness, her childless condition, and to bring her joy in her age. Scripture doesn't tell us how old they were. Let's just say she's 65. 65 year old, new mommy. Such grace. But he was gracious more than just to this family. He was gracious to John. John's name means God is gracious to you, John. You're the greatest preacher who will ever live. Tremendous amount of grace to preach like John did, to live like he did. Only God's grace could accomplish that. But think of his grace to Israel, to the chosen people. What had been promised for for centuries, for millennia, was now coming about in the fullness of time, the apostle says. That time had come. It had arrived. The right moment, the, the pregnant moment, had arrived. God was gracious to Israel, but he was gracious to the world in John. God is gracious. What a name. Being a patriarchal society, they turned to dad. What do you have to say about this, dad? They didn't believe Elizabeth at first. It's hard being a wife. And whereas Elizabeth said, he will be called John, our text says Zechariah's answer was slightly different. Did you notice it? His name is John. He'd already been named. Gabriel named him. There was no doubt. There's no way he could be called Zechariah because he'd already been named. His name is John. What a story. And what a conversion. At that moment, Zechariah's Muteness, his deafness was released, 
and he erupted in an incredible song of praise. The Benedictus is what it's come down to us as called. That's the first word, blessing in Latin, in the Latin version of the Bible. And I want you to consider two parts of Zechariah's conversion. And the first is, what is he converted from? I see five conversion elements here. First, he's converted from unbelief to faith. Zechariah's unbelief is converted to faith. He, at the beginning, does not trust or believe that God is able to do what he says he's going to do through Gabriel. But by the end, he now believes and trusts that God is able to do it. First of all, Elizabeth is pregnant. That helps. But then second of all, his poem, his song, makes it clear that he really does believe that God is doing some mighty things in his life. The second conversion element is that he, he moves from disobedience to obedience. And obedience looks like, I believe, he no longer resists God's plan. If you just maybe go like this. Or maybe go like this. Resisting God's plan. Back away, please. Please stay away. No, thank you. Zechariah is disobedient because he's resisting God's plan at first. Resistance can be emotional. It could be mental. It could be spiritual. But Zechariah had to relinquish his reservations and they were replaced with what I'm calling an obedient acceptance. I should note here as an aside, we would all do well, especially the children, to think about your obedience in terms of letting go of your mental, emotional, and spiritual reservations to your parents' godly instruction. God desires you children to obey your parents in their godly instructions. And the older you get, the more you'll see that they're not always godly. To obey your parents from the heart. Now this is difficult. And if you're an adult child, you know the parents don't stop telling you what to do either. I... I also think it's helpful to see his, his, he stopped being reserved. That's the obedience I'm pointing out. He's released his reservations. And you can see it in the way that he names the son. And I wonder if there isn't also, parents, an example for us to follow here in the way that we name our children. You know, naming of a child is an important moment in a couple's life, especially the first I think parents would be wise to consider naming their children for great and godly saints and servants in the scriptures and in church history and even in your family. John, as I've said, is quite a meaningful name. It's certainly not a pagan name. It's not a meaningless name. Another conversion element that we see here is that John 
or rather Zechariah moves from ignorance to insight. He now comes to understand what God is doing, whereas before he was in the dark. You see this in the way that he begins his song of praise. He blesses God. To bless God doesn't mean you're giving God something. He is the blessed one. He has all blessing. But to bless God means to praise God or to give thanks to God for who God is and what he's doing in our lives. This is a Jewish traditional prayer. It's called the Barakah, which means blessing. We also see Zechariah's insight when he explains that one of the roles of his son would be to give God's people the knowledge of salvation because they and the Gentiles, perhaps unbeknownst to them, sit in the darkness of ignorance, disobedience. And Zechariah sings this because he's experienced it. It's interesting. Too many of us sing about things that we don't know or don't believe. Zechariah himself is singing about the mission of his son because he's already experienced it. He's case number one in the Messiah's program, if we can say it this way. He's the first example of the conversion that he's singing about in his blessed song. I also see Zechariah converting from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. This is a fourth aspect of the conversion is that the comparison I want us to see is between Zechariah's response to the angel and Mary's response to the angel. If you compare these, if you compare the actual words that Zechariah says to the angel in his question and Mary's question, they read almost identically. You'd be hard-pressed by the words themselves to interpret or discern any difference whatsoever between what Mary's asking and what Zechariah is asking. But I'm telling you, Zechariah is self-centered with his question, and Mary is God-centered. And we only know this by the response that each receives from the angel. One receives praise, the other receives discipline and rebuke. Zechariah is not the first one to question an angel either. Abraham questions an angel. Gideon questions an angel. Yet all these responses are very different than Zechariah's. I think the reason is, is because the Lord somehow unquestionably beheld something in Zechariah's attitude that went deeper than his words that suggested that his heart was not focused on God, but on himself. And so, as Calvin puts it, God's anger was kindled against him for throwing back with disgust the promised favor. God was angry with Zechariah. So I think Luke helps you understand that there was something self-centered rather than God-centered about Zechariah's question when compared to that of Mary. And the fifth aspect, the last one, I'm calling religious duty to spontaneous praise. I've hinted at this. Zechariah is a good man. Scriptures actually tell us that he's a righteous man, and they also tell us that he walked in all the commandments of God with Elizabeth, his wife, and was blameless before the Lord. That's quite a resume for, for godliness. 
this couple were faithful in their religious duties. And I don't believe just externally. I believe they were faithful from the heart. And not only that, God had laid a heavy trial upon Zechariah and Elizabeth. They had prayed for and longed to have a child, but they were not able. As in our day, so also then and even more so, being childless was one of a woman's most bitter sorrows. But in spite of all this, they remained faithful in their duties. But I believe, even though the text is silent on this point, I perceive something lacking in Zechariah's religious duty and his religious faithfulness. And I'm calling that lacking element, that missing ingredient, I'm calling it spontaneous praise. Perhaps Zechariah had grown cold. Perhaps his heart had become somewhat hardened by the heavy burden his wife had borne for all those years of barrenness. But prior to the visit of the angel, at some level, Zechariah was just going through the motions. And after this discipline of God had come upon him, and when it had finished its work, he was a transformed man, someone who uttered forth spontaneous praise. What about you? Were you planning to come to church this morning? Same as last week? Were you expecting God to break through in your life today? Do you think you yourself might be in a religious rut? Are you disillusioned perhaps by God seeming indifference to or ignorance of or callous disregard of prayer after prayer after prayer that you've made? What kind of news in your case would be the kind of news that would cause all of your friends and family members to marvel. The text says that all the neighbors were treasuring these things in their heart. What kind of announcement would you need to receive that would cause you to break forth into spontaneous praise? These are conversions elements. Now what about the result? What are the consequences of Zechariah's conversion? I'm going to Notice three from our passage. First, there's a commitment to God's plan. The outcome, the, the way we know that Zechariah is converted, this convert, first conversion consequence, is that he's committing himself to the unfolding of God's plan, his part in God's plan. Included with this, I believe, is an understanding that God's plan is cohesive. He sees the the unfolding plan of God in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy as one plan. He sees all the unfolding plan of God through, through the history of the kings and chronicles as one plan. He sees the, the expression of hope as exile settles upon God's disobedient people. The Prophetic utterances of hope, all contributing to one plan. So he's committed to the plan of God because in his, in his song of praise, we see him weaving together, in a way, the entire Old Testament into one song, praising one God for God's one plan to save his world. But I think he was also committed to the plan. The text doesn't say this, but I'm inferring this. He was committed to raising John in a certain way. 
In the first visit of the angel, he's told that he would be a Nazarite all his days. Now, priests weren't permitted to consume alcoholic beverages while they were carrying out their priestly duties. It's forbidden in the law. And there was a certain vow, it's called a Nazarite vow, which for a season of time, a priest would take up a Nazarite vow and abstain from, from all alcoholic beverages and other activities for a period of time. John, whole life. This would have required some commitment on the part of the parents to prepare their child. They had to tell him at the very least that he's being raised in a certain way. The very last two verses of our text, verse 79 and 80, tell us that John grew up in the wilderness, in the desert. I imagine it a sort of boarding school for prophets. Maybe he moved there when he was 8 or 12. This required some commitment on the part of his parents. We don't know when John moved to the desert or exactly why, but the wilderness was a traditional place for a prophet to live in the Old Testament, and there was at the time a religious sect called the Essenes who lived in the wilderness and were waiting for the kingdom of God. John may have been part of this group. The other consequence of Zechariah's conversion is that he understands God's dynamic, how God's working. He begins to appreciate and perceive, understand, and we see it in this amazing song that he sings, that God's focus is on bringing his son into the world to change the world, not on human politics. The focus is on the human heart. The emphasis in Zechariah's song, there's a kind of climax in the description of the forgiveness of sins. Holiness, godliness, righteousness, and worship. These are the themes that concentrate all of the, the aspirations in Zechariah's song. Now, I need to qualify this because Politics works its way into the song of Zechariah. That we are being delivered from all those who hate us. And that includes, it's more than this, but it certainly includes political hatred. See, Zechariah understands God's dynamic, doesn't exclude the realm of politics, but transcends the realm of politics. It includes politics, but that's just the starting point. What good would a Christian president be without Christian people, for instance? We can live with pagan presidents as long as we have a Christian people. The third consequence, I think, and I think this may be the, the heartbeat of it all, is that Zechariah has a personal experience with God, and he's not going back. I think this personal experience gives rise to all the others, all the other consequences that we see. Well, before I conclude this morning, I want to revisit this theme of preaching that I mentioned in the beginning of my sermon. Zechariah is the father of the greatest preacher of all time, and 
At least initially, he faced some challenges in adapting to his new circumstances, not the least of which would be a very old new daddy. While there will never be another John, I think all parents of preachers have had struggles of various kinds. For instance, my mom and dad have not always had an easy time of it. I can't see why not. I mean, really. And even though I'm far from the greatest preacher of all time, I have not always been the easiest child for my parents. Now, some of it has been their own fault. They had to learn to read their Bibles because I was coming home and talking about the Bible all the time. They had to go back to their scriptures. They had to challenge me on points where I was wrong. They had to, they had to put up with poor sermons week after week, figuring out what is God doing in the life of my son. And it just hasn't been limited to my parents who had a hard time. My wife and children haven't had it the easiest either. My wife tells the story back in the early days of our ministry where I would have her read my sermons early, uh, about 20, actually about 20 minutes before I had to leave for church. This is, she put it this way, apparently, and I don't remember this, I would hand it to her while I jumped in the shower and over the noise of the fan in the bathroom, she would give me her feedback. There were times when she didn't like what I had written. Other times, she liked what I had written and then I didn't preach what she liked. And that bothered her. My son shares the story of how sometimes it seemed to him that I was calling him out in the middle of a sermon, only to find out later that I had no idea what he was talking about. Well, how are the personal stories of mine related to our text this morning? Each of my children, my wife, even I myself, We've all had to figure out our role in relationship to the preacher. Each one of us has to wrestle every week with our own experience in that sense. Not just once, but week after week, the preacher's family, I think all of us, don't we? We've got to choose to be part of God's plan in the world which for those of us who are regular attenders and members of this church means hearing what God has to say to us today. Not tomorrow. And not yesterday. Each week you have to choose once again to receive God's word delivered to you as it is the word of Christ. And as many preachers pray, setting aside the man and hearing the message. And not just to hear it, but to accept it, to submit to it, to receive it with faith and love, to store it up in your heart, to respond to it with spontaneous praise. This is not easy work. The reality is whether you are or will be either a preacher yourself, married to a preacher, friends to a preacher, the son of a preacher, a father or mother of a preacher, or just sitting under preaching. We all need to learn from Zechariah this morning. I've been saying throughout the message that Zechariah is a Christmas convert. 
He's radically transformed by his wife's pregnancy. But this needs to be qualified. It's not so much version in Zechariah's case from darkness to light, from, if you will, hell to heaven. It's more of a renewal from indifference, idleness, and weariness to enthusiastic engagement with God's grace, personally reappropriating the promises that he probably already knew. Zechariah's faith is renewed, and it shows by the remarkably thoughtful song he sings when the muteness is removed. What all the characters around the cradle have in common is that each of them eventually understood that they had a role to play in God's story of redemption. And they couldn't play that role unless God supernaturally did something for them. Zechariah came to realize that he himself needed forgiveness of sins. He came to see that what he needed to do in God's story, God had to do for him. And at the end of the day, that's what Zechariah's song is about. Zechariah's faith is renewed and he's converted because his life is radically reoriented away from himself and towards God. And because of his transforming experience with God and the story of salvation through Jesus Christ, Christ's life, death, and resurrection Zechariah will never be the same. His song is proof that he was converted. It shows a lot about what he must have been thinking and learning for that nine-month retreat that he was on. He used his time in the wilderness, so to speak, where his son would dwell, effectively, fruitfully. And when God had finished disciplining Zechariah, he had much to show for it. What's God trying to get your attention with? How's he trying to get you to change your path? Have you received a visit from God? Probably not Gabriel. But let's not feel bad for ourselves. Scripture tells us that the word of the Scriptures, the word of Christ, is more firm than even the revelation of angels. Look it up. It's in Hebrews. You've got a better word than the word of an angel in this Bible. What response is God looking for from you? Are you doubting God's plan? Do you believe he can do the impossible? Which part of Zechariah's conversions relate to you? Unbelief to faith? Disobedience to obedience? Ignorance to insight? Self-centeredness? to God-centeredness, religious duty, to spontaneous praise. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for Zechariah and his conversion. And though each of us meet you in very different ways than Zechariah did, the heart of our encounter is the same, which is we need Christ. We need him in our lives. We need what he offers us, not just as the baby in the manger, but as the man on the cross. Give us Christ, we pray. In Christ's name.
Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.